If you have your Bibles, go with me to Judges 3, and uh, we're going to be in Judges 3, verses 7 through 11 there. Othniel, he is the Lion of God. That's who we're going to talk about this evening. Judges chapter 3, we'll look at verses 7 through 11. Judges chapter 3, verse 7, these are the words of God. Thus the sons of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and forgot Yahweh their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rashataim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rashataim eight years. Then the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up a savior for the sons of Israel to save them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war, and Yahweh gave Cusham Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. So his hand was strong against Cushan Rishatayim. Then the land was quiet for 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have come now to your word to learn obedience. During this past week, it is very likely that we found ourselves weary of doing good, perhaps even tired of practicing righteousness. We know that the only answer to a spiritually parched man or woman is the refreshment we get when we look to your word and rely on your Holy Spirit. So we ask and pray that you would be generous to us, patient and willing to grant us a drink from your fountain of grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, it's good to be back with you again, uh, being away last week. And I'm excited to get back into our study of judges. And tonight, we'll be exploring the very first judge, the first judge we meet. Uh, Actually, we already met him, but he's the first judge as it's laid out here, Othniel. And he sets the bar high on judgeship. By a way of reminder, the judges are Holy Spirit-filled leaders who exemplify, they exemplify what it means to be a covenant keeper. They're the ones who show Israel what it means to be a a covenant keeper. They are true Adams. They are faithful Abrahams. They are obedient Noahs. They are divinely anointed rescuers. And God raises them up by his grace as a seed of the woman to deliver his people out of darkness and rescue them into his marvelous light. Remember Genesis 3 and the great antithesis of all history, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, and that war goes on all throughout history. Now, lest we think that the judges were professional clergymen who sip coffee and sit around all day reading books, we need to clarify one aspect of this most important assignment. What is it that Holy Spirit-filled leaders do? What do Spirit-filled leaders do? Or what what should they be doing if they're not doing it? And the answer is this. They wage holy war... They take the land, and they make it fruitful. 
That's the paradigm of judges. They wage holy war, they take the land, and they make the land fruitful. By the way, that same paradigm applies today as well, except for the fact that we don't use ox goads to strike down 600 Philistines, <laughs> which is what the third judge, Shamgar, has done. And Shamgar is the third judge, and we only have one verse about him. So we don't grab the ox goads, the thing that you use to prompt the oxen to get moving and you poke and prod them. We don't use that to kill 600 Philistines. However, though, that doesn't mean it still doesn't apply. Our war goes beyond physical aspects. We're taking thoughts captive, making them obedient to Christ. We are taking down idolatrous speculations, um, making those obedient to Christ. We are taking down those speculations of the principalities, of the powers that are in rebellion to this world. Uh, our war may, in fact, involve some physical altercations, Think self-defense, think just war, uh, th think those types of things. Think, you know, the American War for Independence. Uh, sometimes those things are necessary, and maybe that'll come around another time here. We'll see. But, but that's not our primary means, by the way. Just to be clear, that's not our primary means. No, we are to expend our energies in service to the kingdom of Christ by seeing to it that sin is demolished wherever we may find it, starting with our own hearts and working out towards the greater idolatries. That's why Jesus says to remove the log from your own eye before you go to your brother who has a speck in his eye. That doesn't mean you can never confront someone. It just simply means make sure you have yourself right before the Lord. That's what Holy Spirit people do. They make sure that they're right before the Lord, and then they go into the town square and say, see this statue that needs to go. <laughs> this, this Asherah pole that you worship a false god, that's, that needs to go. And our modern-day statues are not necessarily Civil War statues that need to go, because we, we see that stuff going all the time, but perhaps statues like the temple that sits in D.C. in honor of uh, Lincoln. Maybe that needs to go. Which is to say, by the way, that we are absolutely taking the land. That's, the, that's just sort of foundational thinking. We are taking the land, and we are making it fruitful. Now, call it holy war if you must, and it, be careful because most modern Christians will call you, you just like Muslims and you want the Sharia law thing, you just want to impose it. Well, no. I mean, we do want to impose it, but we're not going to kill you over it. <laughs> uh, we're going to try to get to your heart. We're going to try to get to your mind. We're going to try to hopefully win you to Christ and win your heart to Christ. So you can call it a holy war if you want, but it's more like, in our view, it's more like a few cleanup missions because in Christ... The victory has already been won. The war has already had been, has been won. So our discipleship of Fauquier County, Prince William County, Loudoun County, Culpeper County, all, all, the, all of this mindset of we're here to disciple them how to function in God's created world, how to rid themselves of idolatry, we know we have to do that first, but we're also trying to get to them. And when we do that, we also know that it's not easy. Anybody have family members that have been so COVID crazy, it's been almost virtually impossible to talk about? Okay, like, and that's just that issue, let alone the greater issue of Christ victoriously marching through history with a sword coming out of his mouth, with the gospel winning people over. So we have a lot of work to do, but most Christians don't even see that we're supposed to do anything out there, so to speak. You know, Christianity is supposed to be between your ears and behind your eyeballs. That's about the extent of it. 
But that's not, Judges doesn't tell us that picture, and neither does the, does the New Testament. So the victory has been won. Christ is king. He's been established as Lord, and now we're on a cleanup mission. Okay, that's, the, that's our task. So the judges themselves, they lead Israel, they wage war, and they deliver God's people from the clutches of their own self-imposed slavery to foreign gods and nations. They've done it to themselves. So that's what, you know, you think of the great sins of our day. We've done this. This is our fault. My friend Ron, uh, you'll meet him in a few weeks. He's going to come preach. And uh, most of you know him anyway, I think. But he, uh, we were at the Pride event in D.C. And he just, he looked over to me and said, we did this. And I thought, yeah, you're right. That long before the culture went neck deep in idolatry and sexual deviancy, the church had been doing that. We've allowed divorce to run amok. We've allowed these things to run amok. We've been giving our kids to Caesar. And we wonder why we, it's the reap what you sow principle. We did this. Now, what the book of Judges assumes, by the way, it, it, it's going to assume of you as a reader that it's going to assume that we're familiar with the why of this whole thing. The narrator assumes we are looking at the historical sequence of events through the lens of Deuteronomy, the great covenant book, the great covenant law book. And so when you read Judges, the narrator is assuming you have a handle on some things that were going on way back in Deuteronomy, which wasn't that long ago, just a generation or so ago. And when you read Judges, you should be thinking about the sanctions of Deuteronomy 28. God told Israel long before, if you obey me, these are the blessings if you disobey me, I got 60 more verses telling you how bad it's going to get. So, 14 blessing verses and another 50 or so cursing verses. That's Deuteronomy 28. So you should, you should be thinking about that in the back of your mind as you're reading. When God's people break His law and do not seek to cherish it in their hearts, He brings them to the end of themselves. Okay? When you do not cherish God's law in your heart... He will bring you to the end of yourself. He will bring you to the end of yourself. We, we should also remember Deuteronomy 32. And I'm going to read it, but if you want to go back later, you should look it over. But Deuteronomy 32, verses 36 through 39. Deuteronomy 32, 36 through 39. It says this, For Yahweh will render justice to His people and will have compassion on His slaves and he sees that their strength is gone. And when he sees that their strength is gone, and there is none remaining, bond or free, and he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. What a powerful text. Let me give you an, 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 an other words sort of thing. God will make you sleep in the bed that you have made, and when you wake up ornery and cranky because you didn't sleep well, he's going to tell you that he told you so. Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses before Moses dies, God brings him up to the mountain and kills him because he's not allowed to go into the promised land because of his sin earlier. 
And Moses' indictment here is very, very sobering. The idols can't give you refuge. Only Yahweh can. Imagine seeing these miraculous events and still being dumb enough to think that you can look to another god. The idols demand food and wine, and you gave them it all. You gave it to them. You, the libation offering, you gave them the best you could give. Where are your gods, Yahweh says. Where are they? You look to them. Why aren't you looking to them now? The idols can't move. That's why there's so many passages in Isaiah, in the Psalms, about idols and how really dumb they are. And the people who worship them become like them. They can't move, but Yahweh tells his people, get up, get on your feet, get out of bed, look around, see how impotent they really are. And we're going to come to that with the story of Gideon, by the way. Uh, which is kind of a funny story, but this theme comes back in Gideon's story. But Yahweh exclaims, look, there is no God but He. He puts to death. God is the one that puts to death. God is the one that gives life. He is the one that makes sure the leaves fall off the trees and then they come back in the spring. He's doing that. None of us did that. He's on top of things. He wounds. He heals. There is no one who can deliver from God's mighty hand. So that is what should be in our minds when we look at this text. Let's go over it. In our passage, we find in verse 7 that the sons of Israel had done, quote, what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. The evil that God sees, remember here, the the theme of the book is everyone's looking at their own, through their own eyes and making these poor choices. They're, They're doing what is right in their own eyes. That's the very last verse of the book. It comes up over and over in the book of Judges. But here, God sees, only God can truly see, God sees goodness and evil for what they are perfectly. And God sees that Israel's decision to forget Yahweh and his provisions, and he sees that they in turn serve false gods. Now, let me help you with the word forget, because this is another theme here. For forgetfulness, when you see it in Scripture and you kind of mull it over in your own heart, but forgetfulness is an intentional decision in that we no longer act on what we know. That's forgetfulness. It's an intentional decision okay, that we make in that we no longer act on what we know. How many of you have acted apart from what you know before? Anyone? <laughs> Perhaps today. <laughs> we know certain things, and by knowing we believe them, we hold them, we cherish them, and yet somehow we acted opposite of what we believe and say. See, in Christianity, here's the thing. There is no knowing in your mind and then failing to be controlled and led by what knowledge you have in your heart. And I want to explain that because this can be confusing. There, in, in the Christian world, and, and by that I mean regenerate, Holy Spirit-filled people, there is no knowing something in your mind and then sort of not acting on what's in your heart. Meaning this. Anyone, by the way, anyone with that sort of deviation is pursuing unrighteousness. That's what makes idols so tempting. That's what makes idols so deceptive. They are concealed in the heart. But here's the thing. You conceal those things. And I'm talking any idol you can think of. The love of money, um, bitterness, gossip, unforgiveness, all of those things that you hold on to in your heart, okay, they're concealed in your heart. 
Nobody's, nobody can look at you with the x-ray vision and say, oh, I see that she's very bitter today or he's very angry today. He's upset with his, his spouse or whatever. Nobody can see that. They're concealed in the heart. But here's the thing. They're manifested in your actions. You only do what you desire. Right? You only do what you desire. That, that's, you're not free from those desires. You, you, they're, they're encapsulated inside of your heart. And so those actions that you do and you perform, I'm talking the words you speak, the places your feet take you, all of that is controlled by what's in your heart. And this tells everyone around you what's going on inside. I'm fond of saying this. I've been saying it for years. When your mouth is open, your heart is on full display for the world. When your mouth opens up, you have now given insight into what is inside of your heart. And if it's disgusting behavior or vulgarity uh, or, or, or gossip or bitterness, you are simply telling the world what's going on in here. You're basically going to the farmer's market and putting your idols on display. Look what I have, everyone. That's what you're doing. Now, if, if those things are sour and destructive, you know, the fool gives vent to his spirit, Proverbs said. Th those types of things are all over the Proverbs. But if those things are, are present, then the idol is sort of rearing its ugly head in your life. But this issue of forgetfulness pops up repeatedly in the text. When we ask God, for example, when we ask God to forget our sins, this is another way of asking God to not act in justice towards us, but in mercy. When you go to God and say, Father, in the name of Christ, please forgive me for this sin. Please forgive me for my attitude, for my bitterness, yada, yada. Forgive me for this. You are asking God not to come at you in a just manner, but a merciful manner. Because if it was a just manner, you'd die on the spot. Because the wages of sin is death. But we're not asking for that. We want him to forget it, meaning don't act in that way. I need your mercy. And I'm casting myself on the cross of Christ where my sins have been nailed. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. And by the way, this issue of forgetfulness... All of us in this room have all the reminders that we need. We have the Word of God and we have the sacraments. You've been baptized. You have the Word of God in your lap. You have what you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need a sign out there. You have what you need. It's sufficient for life and doctrine. Now, so that's the issue. God sees this in us. He saw it in Israel. He sees it in us. As a, as a result of serving the Baals and the Asheroth. By the way, that, remember, that was the fertility couple of the ancient world. We find in verse 8 that the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. The anger of God, the anger of Yahweh's covenant name burned against Israel. And as a consequence, Yahweh acts. And verse 8 says, He sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatayim, king of Mesopotamia. Say that ten times fast, by the way. Kushan Rishatayim. I had to practice that this week. See, God intervenes, but he intervenes by sending trouble. And isn't that interesting? Yahweh is the God who creates and tears down, the God who makes history, who orders history, who manages all of history. And God's historical judgments, by the way, are always, always kind. Whatever the nonsense the past two years, somehow it's a kind thing. Whatever, what, we can't see it because we're stuck here in this time-bound spatial place, 
But God sees the bigger picture. He knows what's going on. And his judgments in history are always, always kind. And there's a reason why it's kind. In order for Israel to truly see their dire situation, they needed to be brought to an end in themselves. He has a conquering king come in and take them and make life terrible for them. But, but they have to see. They're not seeing what God sees. They're seeing what they see. So God sends judgment so Israel can taste and see that their sin is wicked and putrid. And by the way, the name Kushan Rishatayim means doubly evil or the double evil one. There's significance here. You heard how many times I said it when I was reading it. It's repeated here for a very specific reason. It's a wordplay in the narrative. And I'm going to come back to that. But regarding God's judgments, listen, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, but when we are judged, talking about Christians, when Christians are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the, with the world. So when God judges the wicked, it's an act of justice against their sin. But when God judges, judges the church, it's for restoration. Okay? Parents, you get it. When you try to discipline your child because they did something wrong, it's not out of hatred. Kids, your parents, aren't, they don't hate you. They love you and they want you to go in the right way. So when they correct you because you've gone off the rails and went the wrong way, the path of foolishness, the loving thing is to bring you back, to bring you back. That's what God does. So here's the thing. If, if the judgment dislodges the idol and forces us to loosen our grip on it, isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth it? You have an idol that you hang on to so hard and God puts you through hell so you'll let go. Isn't it worth it? Sin is not to be managed. It's to be fought against. But we like to manage those things instead of making war against those things. And when we start to try and manage it, manage it, we start to tolerate it. And when we tolerate it, the grip of that idol, we hold tighter and tighter to it. And we are told that Israel served this foreign nation, by the way, eight years, the text says. Eight years, which means it's now time for a resurrection. Jesus Christ we always say Jesus Christ rose on the first day of the week. Well, yes, but theologically, he rose on the eighth day. And eight is the number of resurrection. The seven years are complete. That eighth day is the new beginning, the new creation. So after eight years, the people of God, here we find in our text, they finally cry out to God. They're, they're in agony. And I'm not convinced it was a, a cry of repentance, by the way. It was a cry of suffering a cry of agony and anguish for what was happening to them. Think Israel who was being oppressed by Egypt until Moses came. They really weren't repenting. They were just crying out in agony. And in verse 9, we see that uh, as a response to their cry, Yahweh raised up a Savior for the sons of Israel to save them. Now don't sleep on the power of this verse. The Hebrew words are very important. Yahweh raised up a Mashiach, a deliverer, a savior, kind of cognate word of Mashiach, Messiah, but a Mashiach in order to yasha, to save them or rescue them. God's people needed to be saved. By the way, Jesus is Yeshua, and that essentially 
is Joshua. Jesus' name is kind of symbolically Joshua. And it means Savior. So God's mighty hand came to Israel, not because they were penitent and sorry, but because they were in pain and misery. So God raises up a Mashiach in order to yasha them, a deliverer, a Savior to save them, to deliver them. And they were at the bottom of the grave. They were dead in their sins, and yet they needed a Savior, and God raised one up. And the rescue, by the way, is completely God's doing. So our contribution to the rescue are simply the terms and conditions of our sin and plight that made the rescue necessary. That's all we give to the issue. That's it. If you want to end the suffering, cry out to God with a serious assess, assessment of your life. What idols am I harboring? What sins am I embracing? And so on. So who is the Savior we have? What is his name? Well, his name is Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. He's Caleb's nep nephew. And verse 10 says, And the Spirit of Yahweh came upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war. And Yahweh gave Kishon Rishtayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. So his hand was strong against Kushan double evil. See, Othniel, he's the ideal leader. He's the tip of the spear of all the judges. He gets to go first because he's the faithful one. He's the faithful one. Othniel is Caleb's nephew, and he marries Caleb's daughter. So, yes, it was a cousin thing, but many, many kids in different situation. But he did that back in chapter 1. If you remember, Caleb put out a sort of a, a bounty. <laughs> Anyone who beats Kiriath-Sephar, that place, and destroys them, gets my daughter Aksa. And Othniel did it. And he got, he got the girl. He married her. There was um, overtones of Eden. The donkey was there, the animal, there was a, the springs of water. These are certainly clues in the text that this is a dominion man. He's a dominion man. He's the true and faithful Adam. He's taming the land as a pioneer king of sorts. So Othniel is definitely an ideal Messiah-type figure. He slayed the dragon, got the girl. That's chapter 1. And here he's back in action again. And Othniel means Lion of God. It means the Lion of God. And because of his connection to Caleb, he is also, by the way, from the tribe of Judah. Caleb was not an Israelite. He became a covenant member. Uh, the Kenizzites, he joined up with the tribe of Judah. They were brought in covenant members, and he became a worshiper of God. Remember, Caleb was the faithful, one of the faithful spies. But only he and Joshua went into the promised land. So Othniel comes in. He's, his heart is consumed with the zeal of Yahweh. He is a true dominion man in every sense. And aside from Joshua, Othniel is the only judge whose life doesn't have some serious or glaring flaw. We're going to meet them later. Uh, other than Shamgar, we only get one verse. But when, when he saved or delivered Israel, this is Othniel, he's the one who did it. But the glory was God's and Othniel knew it. Right? If you're truly serving God and something great happens, you know it's Him. And that was the case here. When the Spirit of God comes, holiness burns the man up, leaving behind only righteousness and justice. And you remember in the New Testament, the Spirit, by the way, came as tongues of fire on the community, settling down on them and us, putting us setting us on fire for the task at hand. And that's what happened here with Nathaniel. And the wording is brilliant. God sent the trouble to Israel. 
He sent the trouble, gave Israel into the hand of Cushan double evil, and yet he also sent the leader with his spirit to rescue them from the trouble that he inflicted. Which is to say, God governs all of history, start to finish. He will accomplish all that he intends to accomplish. So Israel's given into the hand of double evil, and then double evil's given into the hand of Othniel. There's a word play. And now look at verse 11. We see the result of Othniel's leadership and labor. It says, The land was quiet for 40 years. 40 years. Cushan double evil from Aram double rivers was defeated. There are some overtones here. If you remember, uh, Abraham was called out of Ur. Ur would have been Babylon. So Abraham came out of Babylon. So kind of what's happening here with the language in reference to Babylon, this Mesopotamian rulers, was that if Israel would not obey, God would send them back to Babylon and thus threaten the Abrahamic promises. That's the idea here. But we, all, we know that this wouldn't be so because God always saves. So the language, Kushan Rishatayim, Kushan double evil. It's a reference, as I see it, I think this theme pops up, but I think it's a reference to the snake from the garden. Keep in mind, Assyria and Babylon were the twin superpowers of ancient Mesopotamia. You had Egypt down in the southern part, and in the northern part you had Assyria, and then later Babylon. They were... They were it, okay? They were the superpowers. By the way, those powers would later come destroy Israel and then Judah. Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom in 722. Babylon would come in 586 B.C. and destroy Jerusalem and, and Judah, the southern kingdom. But these powers who would later come are, are present and Othniel handles them. Easy peasy. Fairly decisively, he's, he's the snake crusher. That's the idea. He's the snake crusher. And what is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in conquering evil? What do we get? Peace. There's peace in the land 40 years. The double wicked one was given into Othniel's hand because Othniel's hand reflected his heart and mind, which was consumed by Yahweh in his covenant order. So turning from idolatry, means that Yahweh delivers, and when Yahweh delivers, there is peace in the land as a result. And that's why we don't have peace in our land today, by the way. We don't have peace because we're not worshiping the Prince of Peace. The triune God is the Lord of history, which means that all things work together for good for those who love Him. And how many years did the land have peace? Forty years. A whole generation had refuge in the rock from which they were hewn. So let's look at this a little bit and broaden it out. Remember I said earlier in Judges that it points, Judges points us to a paradigm, and the paradigm is a covenant-keeping Savior who is empowered by the Spirit, who delivers and rescues God's people, granting them rest. That's the whole, that's the point of the book. And this is, I think, one of the most clearest pictures of Jesus that we can find in the Old Testament. I mean, we, can, we know he's the son of David, and there's the Davidic theme, and we know there's a lot of those connections, but here it's, I think, palpable. What do Holy Spirit-filled leaders do? They wage war, 
They wage holy war. They take the land. They make the land fruitful. They give it rest from the humanist penchant for destruction. That's the, that's the paradigm. And I think this passage is remarkable. Note, it's very short, right? It's very short. It's just a quick narrative. It's stripped-down narrative. It's unlike the saga of Samson, which takes a couple of chapters to get through. It's just a very simple few verses, a handful of verses. There's no double-mindedness here, right? There's not a lot of pomp and circumstance, sort of celebratory, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and Saul gets jealous, and there's that whole thing. There's none of that. It's just... Othniel, he just obeys. He does the job. He just gets the job done. He's, he's, not, he's not one to complain. He doesn't complain about anything. There's no waffling back and forth, you know, struggling with a fear of man issue. There's no double-mindedness. He's not getting caught up in the affairs of the tentacles of worldliness. Nothing like that is present. Othniel is a dominion man fully surrendered to his Lord and Master. I think that's why there's none of that. He just does it. He gets the job done. And it's likely that Othniel was probably already in the community, was probably already viewed and recognized as a judge based on his previous battle in chapter 1 when he got his wife as a result. But here the story is wrapped up rather quickly. The, the cycle of events is here. You remember the cycle we talked about? This is the way it's supposed to work, though. One, Israel is found serving idols, and they, they're sinning against God, right? That's, that's the situation. Two, Israel is enslaved by God's enemies, sort of a reversal of Egypt and a reversal of Babylon. Three, Israel cries out to God in agony. And four, God raises up a judge who acts as Israel's paradigmatic savior, the man who is supposed to be the deliverer. So God gives Israel into the hands of the enemy, and lest the enemy become conceited, God gives the enemy into the hands of the judge. God will not be mocked. Three things are noteworthy about Othniel here. First, the Spirit was upon him. Very simple, straightforward. This is Holy Spirit work. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Second, he wages war, he's a fighter. He's not scared, probably very well skilled in, with the sword. He, he, he's a skilled man, perhaps a bow and arrow. He wages war, meaning that he knows the enemy. He knows what is required of him by God. And earlier in chapter 3, he learned war, because need, you need to learn war. All of us need to learn war in here. Meaning we need to know who the enemy is. We need to know how to fight the enemy. And, and that being on the terms of God's word, and then finally, third, we learn that the, re the land had rest as a result. Covenant obedience always leads to Sabbath rest. Now, this small narrative packs a punch. Judges 3, this is what's remarkable about this. Just think for a second about this. Judges 3 tells us that a lion from the tribe of Judah overthrows the doubly evil one who held God's people in bondage because of their transgressions. Anyone else know a lion from the tribe of Judah who rescues God's people who are stuck in sin and delivers them so that they can have peace? Othniel clearly points us to Jesus, the true and greater Othniel, the true lion of Judah. And recall what Jesus said about himself in Matthew, excuse me, Luke 4, when he's opening up the scroll and he reads it and he quotes from Isaiah and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he goes to say, to set free those who are oppressed. 
See, it was Jesus who bound the strong man. Jesus bound the strong man, the doubly evil one, so that he could plunder his house. That ancient serpent who had beguiled God's people, tempting them into a life of rebellion. It is Jesus who bound him. Satan has been bound. It is Jesus who conquered the ruler of the age, the worldly system's ruler. You think of the, the system of evil. That's what the world here refers to. He's the triple evil dragon known as the accuser. And we also know that the serpent bruised his heel on the cross. But it was Jesus Christ who crushed the serpent's head three days later when he rose victorious from the grave. See, Jesus is the stronger one. Freedom and liberty is only bound up in the one who saves, the one who delivers. For Israel, it was Othniel and the other judges, however temporary. But for us, it is Christ, the great judge, the new Othniel, whose pioneer work paves the way for his spirit-filled followers. Which is to say, by the way, if it isn't rooted in Christ, it isn't liberty. It isn't rest, and it's never going to be peace. See, the battle against evil in our age requires the total eradication of evil. Follow me here. The, er the battle against evil requires the total eradication of, of evil. Othniel wasn't content with minor skirmishes and half measures. He wanted the matter resolved. This was a man of resolution. He was resolved to take care of the task. He wanted justice and righteous righteousness to win the day today. Does this des describe the church today? <laughs> resolute on these things. And the same was with Christ. He is our great abolitionist of evil. Christ is our great abolitionist of evil. Far too often we take a different attitude than Othniel and Jesus. Far too often we are content with sheltering under the tree of a false god. We too can compromise like Israel. We can be half-hearted. We can be weary from paying too much attention to the sin that so easily entangles us. Sometimes we keep quiet and to ourselves. Sometimes we just rather entertain ourselves to death. Just check out from the world, right? It's too, it's too much, so we retreat. We view the sins of others as being beyond the reach of God's grace. And yet our sins, well, Jesus holds a special place in our heart, in his heart for us, right? But he can't help that person because they're such a mess see sometimes our view of sin isn't holy and it isn't from the perspective of of god it's from a from humanist constructs right well sin is it's just sort of it's not really sin it's just maybe a bad choice or an oopsie daisy see sometimes that that's the case for us and that and that so what do you do when you lower the demand of righteousness and you sort of up the demand of sin in your life, well, you downplay it, right? You, you don't think it's as bad. You start looking at it from your own perspective. You do what Judges warns against, seeing with your own eyes and not seeing with the eyes of God. And all of that's just interpersonal relationships. What about the sin that's out there? What about the great evil of statism? The greatest evil of our day, and most pastors aren't teaching about it. What about abortion? I praise God for the Abolition Day in Oklahoma this past week and weekend. Laboring, trying to see righteousness win the day. What about that sin? Do we live... Here's a question for you. This should hit you in the teeth. It did me. Do you live your life as though those things aren't happening? 
Would anyone know from looking at your life that there is rank evil in the world? Do we hurt for people suffering under the weight of it? And do we then choose to intervene? And I think we all know how the church has responded. You see, it's not advancing the kingdom if it starts from compromise. That's the difference between immediatism and incrementalism as it pertains to the abortion holocaust. We're not advancing anything if we're starting the whole pursuit on the wrong footing. And that's my frustration with the political arena these days. Recapturing this nation is going to mean an all-out pursuit of righteousness and justice in all facets. And no longer, I think this is self-evident, but no longer can Christians hide behind, quote, conservative values. What are we conserving anymore? That's, I think there's this foolish assumption that people will eventually just come around and do what is naturally right. But I think now we see how misguided this is. People will do what their heart's desire is, and if it isn't Christ, it's going to be godlessness every single time. I think that's what makes me crazy, even about Republicans. They just want to conserve yesterday's compromise while we drift off into the sea. And there's a reason that they are doing this, and it's because the church is doing this. Pay attention to this last part of verse 11. I want to make one more connection as we land the plane here. The last part of verse 11, it says, And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Kenaz, what? Died. He died. When the deliverer died, the people plunged themselves back into sin. And that's what verse 12 says, but we're saving that for next week. What does that tell us? Why would the narrator make that point? Peace for 40 years, and then he died. And then Yahweh, and then the people of Israel went off and served the Baals again. What does that tell us? So here's what I think. First, it tells us that apart from God's saving activity, we're doomed. Apart from God's saving activity, we're doomed. If, if God's not saving us and delivering us, then it's over. Because we're just going to go and run off into traffic. That's what we do. That's what sin is, right? And I think that's obvious. But the second is maybe slightly less obvious. We need someone who's gone through death and out the other side. That's what makes Jesus' resurrection so important Unlike Othniel, Jesus is no longer dead. Jesus can't be held by death. There's, there's never a need to go back to sin once you understand that the power of sin has been broken. When you understand that paradigm and, and believe it in your heart and push it into your mind, that's liberty, that's freedom, right? Jesus is the greater Lion of Judah, the Lion of God, who is his indestructible life will never falter, never vacillate. His victory has been secured. That's what's different about us today. We don't have to, oh no, our deliverer is dead. What are we going to do? Well, go serve the idols. No, he's not dead. He's alive and he's interceding for you today. See, in order to not plunge yourself into sin, you need to remember you need to remember what Christ has done, and you need to remember what Christ has called you to. And listen, I keep beating this drum, but there's, it just keeps coming up. I even talked about it in Atlanta, but there's no reformation and revival apart from a deliberate and meticulous obedience of God's people to God's law revelation. 
That's it. That's the secret sauce. There's, there's no magic incantation that you can just sort of cajole God into bending his arm. No, there's, there's none of it. There's no ref, reformation. There's no revival apart from a meticulous and deliberate obedience of God's people to God's law revelation, his word. And what we remember, I think when we remember that there's no peace to be made with false gods, we are well on our way to worship and service of the true and living God. Othniel died. He delivered Israel, destroyed double evil man, and he died. He brought peace to a generation, but he died. He was the first judge. He is the ideal and paradigmatic judge, but the fact remains he was just a man and he died. And as great as his victory was, it could not conquer sin and bring everlasting peace. And peace does not last in a world where death still rules and reigns. But you need to understand, Christian, death no longer rules and reigns. That's why Jesus' conquering of death by resurrection from the dead matters so much. Jesus brings eternal peace because the accuser has been thrown down. Jesus put his neck on death and destroyed it. Death has lost its claim on God's people. Don't you dare go and live like that's not the case. See, in order to get peace in this world, we have to see to it that men know the giver of peace. Men everywhere must be shown and told that their foundational beliefs, if it is built on something other or someone other than Christ, it's utterly incoherent and it's utterly dangerous. And you can't legislate your way into peace and harmony. You, you can only get it when you give yourself wholly to Christ the judge. And we don't need the numbers either, by the way. Think about our small fellowship. and We don't need the numbers. We don't need to amass an army. What we need is a faithful and wholehearted witness to the Word of God as the true and foundational principle for our lives. H. Evan Runner once said, The Spirit of God, using the Word of God, can cause all the mighty political structures that emanate from a false principle to crumble and cave like a pack of cards by converting the hearts of men to the truth. He's right. And what is required is faithfulness, friends. Faithfulness obedience, and a deep and abiding appreciation and humility towards Christ and what he has given to us by his Holy Spirit. And I think the, the central religious knowledge that we have in Christ, what we've been given, it matters in a world that can't find peace. And we get to show it in our lives, right? Simple obedience, that's the lesson. Israel, Israel wanted the deliverance when it came, of course. That's exciting. But when it didn't seem present anymore, when Othniel died and all the fun was over, or maybe when things seemed too far off, they were content to cozy up with the humanistically devised religious and political forms of life that the land of Canaan had to offer. That's what they did. And let me tell you, that's what the church has done today. So we must reject that offer wholesale and instead opt for grace and forgiveness, the, the grace and forgiveness that Christ gives us every single day. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice tonight because your Son, the Lord Jesus, has been victorious over death. We thank you for Othniel, who certainly a man who feared you more than anyone else. And we are 
thankful for his example, but we are also thankful for the fact that, Jesus, you are the lion of Judah. You are the lion of God who has taken on sin, has defeated it, nailing it to the cross, bearing it in the, in the grave, and rising victorious over death. Help us to live in light of that, to not be tempted by what we see with our eyes, but to hear your word and trust your word. That's our task. Father, would you help us by your spirit? In Christ's name I pray. Amen.